Hi there, and welcome to Indie Know, a podcast hosted by me, Lane Northcutt. Each episode, I will interview an indie author or publishing professional and chat about all things related to the author journey, including writing, editing, publishing, marketing, advertising, and so much more. If you're an author or just interested in learning more about writing, then stick around. Each week, my goal is simple, to help you learn a bit more about the craft and the industry. After listening, I hope you'll feel a little bit more Indie Know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 3 of Indie Know. Today's guest is Tanya Ross. Tanya Ross was born and raised in San Diego County, her happy place. Although Southern California is a particular kind of paradise, she desires a world where everyone is kind, compassionate, and upbeat, which became one of the themes of her new novel, Rising Up. For 32 years, she was an educator of English, history, AVID, and student leadership. She loves teaching and kids, her students a daily inspiration. Her exit from the educational arena allowed her to indulge her hopes, dreams, and goals in what she taught for so many years, writing. This first novel begins her lifelong dream of writing meaningful novels for young adults. When she's not creating new worlds, you can find her reading, spending time with her husband and two kids, or walking her golden retriever honey. So without further ado, welcome Tanya. Thank you so much, Lane. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, it's, it's really great to have you. Um, First and foremost, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about yourself that we don't get from your website. Um, tell us a little bit about you and, and how you got started in, in writing and, and education. Well, I had always wanted to write a novel, but uh, when you're a teacher, um, and this is a shout out to everybody that's out there teaching these days, teaching is more than a full-time job. It's one of those things where your nights and weekends are taken up. Uh, grading papers and planning lessons and doing all of those things. So um, in terms of my writing, uh, I just put that on the back burner because I was raising a family as well. So Mm -hmm. when I was finally able to retire, um, that was the time where I decided, yeah, now is the time that I can exercise that dream and, and put a novel together for the kids that I have loved teaching for so long. Right. And that's such a, that's such a nice goal, right? To, to already have instilled in these kids such a, such a big lesson, you know, from the educational side of things. And now you can, can dive further into the world of their imagination as opposed to their uh, structured education. And so you're kind of giving them a little bit of a, a stimulation on both sides of things. Right. And it was also I feel a lesson in leadership for these kids because they knew the kids that I had in the last couple of years of my career, they knew that I was beginning to put together what I was going to write about. I talked to them about the book. um, And one of the things I discovered as I got into the writing of the novel, and I'm sure you would attest to this too, Lane, it it was difficult. It was one of the hardest things that I had ever done in my life. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't anticipating that. But, you know, the number of times where I thought, gee, I think I will just quit um, was not a good message to be sending to my former students, because that was something Mm -hmm. that I was always, you know, really passionate about that just because it gets hard, you don't just give up. So I pushed through and I kept on going um, because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a hypocrite (laughs) um, (laughs) on on some of the leadership skills that I was teaching them. 
Right. And and can you talk a little bit more about your influences both in and out of the schoolroom and and how it is to write for the very audience that you've been teaching all these years? Well, first of all, uh, the genre that I chose to write in, which is dystopian, um, I was inspired when I was teaching uh, Lois Lowry's novel, The Giver, Mm. to my students. And so that was one of my biggest influences at the time. And I was able to see how much they loved getting into that world and talking about the issues that, you know, were so pertinent to our daily lives um, based on what was going on today. And I could tie in so many themes. And so one of the things that was exciting to me was to be able to write something that would do similar things that would allow those students to think about some of the things that we're experiencing today and how those are dystopian in nature um, in many degrees. So that was my influence in terms of that. And it's exciting to me to be able to write for that same group of kids and help them to understand that there is a place for literature um, as a as a real world mirror. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the topic of dystopian and and it's parallel to the world we live in, right? Because as I remember, I think it, it may have been George Orwell or, or um, someone of his stature that had said something of, of the, the fact that dystopian is just putting a mirror to our current reality and, and, and basically just amping it up, right, for fiction purposes. But, but we're not, it's, it's a commentary on, on what we're living. It's almost like a satire in a way. It's not, it's not wholly fictional that we're coming up with these ideas. Right. right? Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that grabbed my attention lately which was pretty mind-blowing for me. I saw an advertisement on Facebook for a wristband that measured people's happiness. And it was touting the use of this in the workplace and oh. how that was such a, um, a good thing to be able to do uh, for your employees. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's like right out of my novel because that's what the people in my book have to do. They have to wear a wrist device that does that. Oh, um, no. Yeah. And so I was just floored um, by how real um, this was becoming. It's, you know, it's, it's both sad and exciting as a fiction writer, specifically in the dystopian genre, to, to have real life events to draw from, right? Um, you know, I think it's it's kind of unfortunate in a way that we sometimes live through certain situations or events that that if you put them in a book and just um, you could almost put them in word for word for what happened and, and you wouldn't really have to dramatize it much. But other times you you dramatize it slightly and it, it fits right into the genre, which which can be which can be daunting at times and, and a little um, depressing living it. But but it creates such a deep world, right? And, uh, and a connection with, with our current times and this fictional universe as well. Right. Well, I love that it allows students, our kids, kids reading my book to mm -hmm. ask those kinds of questions. Okay. So how much is this really real and, and could it go to this degree? 
And of course, the answer um, in most cases is yes. And so it it is a great thinking tool for anyone picking up this kind of literature, as you know. Right. Yeah. And I think it's it's really important that we have those questions um, after we read these books, right? To to really dive in and and talk about the possibility of these things happening and what to do if they were to happen and what causes the the downfall uh, essentially of society and the what leads to dystopian societies and how really close are we to becoming one right exactly i totally agree um but you know as you mentioned you saw this facebook ad that m- mentioned a wristband very similar to your book now you've given us a, a brief idea of something that happens in the book but i'd love for you to talk a little bit more in depth about your book Okay, so I created um, in this book, it's called Rising Up, and it is about a society, it's a city actually um, called Tranquility that is in a dome uh, where they have decided after lots of worldwide strife and an apocalyptic event that they're going to make sure that their society is safe and happy and there isn't going to be any kind of rioting or crime or anything horrible uh, that would lead to a catastrophe or a world war. Mm -hmm. And so what they insist on is their, their citizens wear this wrist device called an alt in this case, and it does measure their emotions. And what they get from that is points where they can rise up in the society And the higher they go, the more luxuries they accumulate. So you kind of start at the bottom and you work your way up. um, And things become complicated when the main character, um, Ember, a 16-year-old, she ends up in the hospital with her mother. Her mother ends up very sick. And this is not something typical at all in this society. People do not get sick. It has been engineered out. And so Mm -hmm. therefore, when she gets sick and then she dies, that's not a spoiler, by the way, (laughs) um, she gets sick and dies. Uh, Then she's left with all of these questions about why this happened. But most of all, she cannot grieve uh, because it's basically against the law. She has to maintain her her happiness or she's going to lose points and her status level is going to drop. And so that's the complication that she faces and not being able to find out what has actually happened to her mother opens up an entire can of worms um, when she discovers what's really going on in this very, very perfect city in which she lives. Right. No, this sounds this sounds really really exciting and really interesting and and I don't think I've ever heard of something as similar to this um you know specifically in the YA and I love the fact that you brought up that you know due to the death of her mother she's unable to grieve without risking going down in points and just dropping in the caste system essentially. Right, exactly. So she's, you know, she's worried about that and keeping up her points. And um, on top of that, she's also an empath. So she feels everybody else's emotions in addition Mm -hmm. to her own. 
And so that really complicates her life. Um, and she has isolated herself pretty much uh, up until this point. So that's what really is a complication for her is trying to now go out into society and ask all these questions when she's been in this sheltered environment and, you know, not knowing what to do or who to turn to. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write Rising Up, specifically the putting such a huge emphasis on emotion and happiness as as the um, measure of society? I really think that right now there is a big emphasis on that. Um, that's what everyone is searching for is the ultimate happiness and the various ways that you would want to get that. And every commercial that we watch is geared to, you know, making your life better and making you a happier person and all of that kind of thing. So our society in general is geared that way. But the whole inspiration came from something that happened to me about 10 years ago um, in our family. Uh, a, a marketing agency called us. And back then, they were a lot more prominent. You may not recognize the name now, but the name Arbitron um, was the company. And what they did was they measured the ratings of the TV shows and radio based on this, this device that you would carry with you. And they mm. asked our family to participate in that. If they paid us, they said, would we carry it around? And all we had to do was just that. And it would pick up all of the radio waves of everything that we listened to and watched on TV so that they can determine um, the ratings for those programs. And so we did that for about a year and a half. But what crossed my mind at the time, and this is, of course, before we had things like Siri and all of our cell phones spying on us anyway, mm -hmm. um, my thought was, I wonder what would happen if this was measuring more than just what I was all these radio waves that I was around and what it was picking up. I wonder what would happen if it could actually measure what I was feeling um, throughout mm. my day. And that was the inspiration um, for the novel. So I just took that and ran with it and, and, you know, put in the whole happiness factor that emotionally we need to be, of course, up and on top of, on top of everything all the time. Right. And um, can you talk a little bit about the struggle that your characters face when when they have this internal conflict of, I can't feel unhappy or else? Yeah, they really are addicted to their, what they, what I call the all, they're addicted to that thing in the same way that we are with our cell phones, a lot of us. Um, they're mm -hmm. checking it constantly throughout the day. There is an anxiety that is connected to they're keeping their points up. And my characters, all of them, um, are in this struggle where they want to make sure that they are putting their best foot forward all the time. They're complimenting people. They're smiling at people. You know, everything is somewhat forced just so that they can get those points. Right. And then I have another character uh, who is a, a rebel, and he is not having any of it from the get-go. He's grown up and struggled with this whole thing. And what happens to people like that is they're labeled as emotional resistors and mm -hmm. they're given counseling and some 
you know, reprogramming. And if they don't change their ways, then they are sent outside the city in this desolate area called the outside um, where there is no food and the temperature extremes are ridiculous. Um, and they're expected to live or die, you know, however. Um, and so I do have this ultimate rebel who comes along and has to endure that, that consequence. Um, so his, his plot line runs parallel to the main characters. Um, and eventually they come together at one point in the novel um, to join forces. So that's uh, yeah, so there is a definite struggle uh, going on inside these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I love that you brought that up about the two point of views coming together. Um, my book does the same thing, you know, where we have an inside and an outside, and the two people start on the opposite, you know, sides and and come together at some point. But um, I'd love to to elaborate more on or to dive into the the question of why we see this inside versus outside, this us versus them narrative, specifically in young adult dystopian, you know, because it, it does pop up very frequently that these perfect societies have created the ideal place to live. And if you're not in that place, you are deemed the other and and you are negative compared to everyone else. And do you, right. do you have an idea of, as to... What's your what's your take on why that is, and do you see a parallel in today's society? I do see parallels in today's society. I think, uh, however, we have become a lot more accepting of people that are different. Um, but I think mm-hmm. that if someone is different and they don't want to conform, that it is a difficult situation for that person. And I know that in in our society, particularly with kids. Um, as they grow up, if they are excluded uh, for one reason or another, and they they have bullying situations, um, it's a terrible thing. Um, I think too that the dystopian genre lends itself to the idea that a government can be so overreaching that the people do not have the opportunity to be themselves, um, no matter what they try to do. And I think that this opposing situation, again, can be seen in our own society where we're looking at how much reach government has into our lives Mm -hmm. and how much of that we're going to permit. And I think it's worth noting that the interesting parallel as well with young adult dystopian and today's society or, or or an idea of what society could be is is that the reason that we see i believe that we see so many protagonists of this age group rebelling against such uh corrupt government is because oftentimes as in real life adults become numb or complicit in society's standards right they they grow up they had that rebellious phase maybe or they had these thoughts but then those were pushed down or pushed away and and they were made to just conform or else and and the reason that we see such a command from these younger protagonists is that they're still in that that age range where their emotions are driving them they're not fully 
dulled by society yet or the government and they they have these big ideas and they realize that oftentimes in these dystopian novels at least that if they don't do something no one will and it, and it's really interesting to see that teenagers are usually the ones that are are rising up right right and i think that that's what makes this genre especially very exciting is that i think people can see um you know, I think young people can see themselves in these characters and the hope that it generates for making change in our world. I think mm-hmm. it can be very inspirational. Um, one of the things that I write in the inside the cover when I sign a book is to be fearless and to be you and then to be happy. Um, and I think those two first pieces are what we need in order to be happy, in order to fulfill who we're meant to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. I 100% agree that it's so important for you to be you, you know, because that that is such a hard thing to do, right, in today's world sometimes with with all of this, all of this stimuli coming in at you and the expectations from others via social media or in your peer group or your or your home life you know, you have so many expectations and, and opinions, but it's sometimes hard to, with everything going on, focus on just yourself and, and, and what, what, who you are and what makes you truly happy. And, and I could not imagine actually having to wear a wristband that a hundred percent of the time is modern monitoring that and, and telling me whether or not I am happy. And if I'm not, that I'm not doing well. Right. Right. And, you know, the fact that your entire living situation depends on that from your food to, you know, where you live and the transportation that you have in your, um, your, your clothes even um, that mm-hmm. are associated with your level of status so that it's out there for everyone to see as well. Um, so it's just a really blatant... Um, really blatant way of showing the rest of the world, you know, how your government thinks of you and where you really are on the status scale. Right. Can you give us a little bit more of an idea on the world itself and, and you know, what happens if you are, are you born happy? Are, you know, are, like you're born rich sometimes, you know, into a, a family that has a high status. Does that happen in Rising Up? Are these kids born into a family where their wristband starts at a certain age? Or do the parents just work their way up to being, uh, quote unquote, very happy? And then they have this high status and then the kids are just born into a happy life because they're already set up this way? Yeah, the kids are born into whatever you know family status that there is. But every child has their own alt from the time that they're five. And they are expected to, you know, learn how to control their emotions. They're trained. They're put into school and given those those indicators, um, that that education, so that they too can rise up and be successful. Um, but the parents are already at that particular status. So until a child becomes eighteen, they are still living under their parents' household. So you're right, if, if a kid is born into a level one family, which is the very bottom of the barrel, um, it's, it would be much harder for that child 
I guess, to be happy, although the emphasis is on, you know, is it the material possessions that make you happy or is it something that you do for yourself that you learn how to navigate your circumstances and rise above those circumstances no matter what they are? Right. And, and that's such a that's such an important message, right, for especially for today's children, because, you know, oftentimes we put such a an emphasis on things that make us happy or money to make us happy. And I, I know people say, you know, money can't buy you happiness, but money can get you the necessities to be happy, like food, shelter, clothing. You know, there's there's a certain level of of poverty, right, that when you don't have the basic needs, it's almost impossible to to be happy with that being said you know it is also as you said up to you and you can make the best of your situation and, and rise up and I, I really love that that title and and the ideas that you're you're bringing forward in this book about how you can start from the very bottom and rise up regardless of your situation right are, are you getting a, a lot of feedback from from children that are reading this and, and even adults that are reading this and and are you seeing this bring back to you what you were hoping it would when you write when you wrote this? Well, unfortunately, I'm not in the classroom anymore. Um, so the feedback that I get from students is usually through the teachers that are allowing the students to read this book in their classes. Mm -hmm. um, and in there, yes, there is a lot of discussion about what really happiness is and can you rise out of your circumstances? And what lessons is this teaching us about our society? So all of those things are discussion topics um, as it as it exists in within literature circles. Um, I'm not really sure about other people. Most of the response I get is just, wow, this was just a really cool book. So mm -hmm. I don't get a lot of feedback in terms of, gee, I, I'm sure glad that our society isn't like this, or this made me wonder about certain things. Um, I think it's just more of an entertainment for a lot of people, um, which yeah. is fine too. You know, um, that, that works for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sometimes we just want to escape sometimes, right. You know, right. Our, our current reality and, and escape into something that's much worse that we don't currently have to deal with. Exactly. <laughs> Although there's not a lot much worse than probably what we've got going right now. <laughs> Very true. Um, I, I would also love to know a little bit more about you and your writing and your writing style, your your routines. Can you give us an idea of of when you're writing? What time of the day is best for you? And do you plot or are you a pantser? How, how do you usually go about structuring your, your book and, and what's the writing process like? Okay, well, I, I have a time each day where I sit down and I do my writing. I'll have my lunch, and then usually after that, I retreat to my office and close myself in there for anywhere from one to three hours, depending on how things are flowing. I have written book one and also book two, not as a plotter. I have been a pantser, I will confess. <laughs> because I really do like being able to have the characters run the story for me and mm -hmm. find the surprises that they offer when they make a decision suddenly that I wasn't expecting. Um, I am getting ready to sit down and write book number three, 
um, in this series. And for that, I have actually done a, an outline um, because it may be the last book in the series. And I want to make sure that I cover all of my bases and get all of the parts tied together and make sure that it is exactly the way it needs to be. So I'm trying an outline with this one. I might find that that's too structured for me because mm-hmm. I'm not used to to that. But it, at least it gives me a framework to go by as I'm getting started. And I can, of course, always change course as I go along, um, right. which is part of the fun of writing for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I And I did the same thing as you did. You know, I started as a pantser. Uh, writing chapter after chapter as I as I just came up with it and as the characters decided to to go, but um, after book one, actually at the the final draft of book one, I started to sit down and bring out index cards, physically write down chapter by chapter outline, just like a a brief, you know, writing what happens in that scene or chapter um, yes. for every single chapter because I realized that. If I pants every single book, it's going to take me four or five drafts to finish before I publish it. And that's just, for me, too many drafts to deal with and too long of a process. Um, so now I, now I do the chapter-by-chapter chapter outline before every book. And I have to say, that has helped a lot in both output, but also, you know, when I, when I step away from the book for a couple of days and come back to it, you know, I, I don't have to be like, oh, wait, where was I? What was I doing? What's happening in this chapter? I can just look at the the outline and say, okay, here's where we're going. Here's what's going on. And, and usually, you know, now that I have the outline, I can crank out in a, in, in an hour, I can almost get out a thousand words sometimes, um, or more. And, and I don't think that was possible with the, the pantsing for me because, you know, it's, it's really hard to just allow things to happen if you kind of don't know where it's going a hundred percent. Right. And that was another consideration for me as well with this outline for book number three. I want to be able to accomplish it in a shorter period of time. Um, My first novel, This Rising Up, took me, I probably wasn't as dedicated with sitting down and writing um, as much as uh, I was with book two, but it Mm -hmm. did take me almost three years to put it together. And then the second book, uh, I was really disciplined with it. But it did take me 15 months of writing almost every day. And that turned out to be, I mean, it's a mega long book, really, really deep and long, um, much more so than Rising Up. Um, But like you, I would like to be able to complete book number three in a shorter period of time and get it out to my readers. So that was definitely another consideration. As far as deadlines go, you know, I, I figured out for myself and I wonder if you're the same way that, you know, self-imposed deadlines are fine, but when you book an editor or you tell people that it's coming a certain date, that's a lot more, um, a kick in the butt, if you will, to, to get it going it, than me saying, oh, I'll probably finish this in five months or a year. Right. Right. Yes, definitely. You know, if you have things lined up like that, um, I give myself a little bit of grace in that regard, um, but in this last, with this last book, uh, when I finished it, I was like, yay, okay, I'm going to turn it over to an editor, and it's going to like come back really quick, and I'm going to be able to get it out, and I was thinking, oh, okay, end of January. Well, that was, you know, such a joke, because I did finish <laughs> it. Uh, um, I did finish it probably uh, early November, 
Um, and then it's like, oh, now I've got to find an editor. Well, okay, an editor can't even start the process with me until February. So, so here I am, and I'm I'm in that holding pattern, um, waiting to even get started with the editing process. And uh, so it's a good thing I didn't say, you know, this is the line in the sand. This book is going to be out, you know, January thirtieth, because that would not have happened. So I have to allow myself to have that grace and a little bit of patience um, in terms of setting those deadlines for myself. Yeah. And and speaking of deadlines and getting the book out, I'd love to to know a little bit more about your publishing journey and your and your author journey in general. Can you give us an idea of of your experience, especially with book one? How was it to to write it and then and then finally get it published? Did you go through any trouble in the publishing and editing phase? And and what was it like to finally get to hold that book in your hands when it was printed? Well, first of all, it was so exciting to be able to hold my book and say, wow, this is mine and I did it. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the whole process, I was really so naive as I went through the publishing part of it because I didn't know anything about it. Um, I had to learn everything I tell people. This was a huge learning curve for me. Um, I didn't know how to find an editor. And when I did, the person I didn't think did a very good job working with me the first time around. Um, in fact, I ended up revising my book a second time after it had already been published because mm. I was still uncomfortable with with some of the depth of the character. So I went back through it a second time. It is still a first edition, but I fleshed it out a little bit more. Um, I chose a book cover my first time around, just going on to a, you know, the already made ones where you can browse through thousands of them and, you know, finally settled on one. And that was just a mind blowing experience. Uh, I didn't know how much I needed to spend. I didn't know what I was looking for. So I finally found something that I thought was suitable um, and then found out later, even though people said they liked the cover, um, it wasn't translating very well to the Amazon page, especially as a thumbnail. Mm -hmm. So I actually redesigned my entire, well, I didn't do it, but I actually hired a professional designer um, and redid the cover um, several months ago. So the cover that is up now is my second cover. So I have had a lot of, you know, trial and error type of experiences, which I wouldn't recommend to anyone um, because it's very painful, (laughs) (laughs) very painful process. But, you know, I have learned and I know going forward now what to do and what not to do. And when I did launch my first book, I didn't even know anything about you know, how to launch a book and um, that kind of thing. So I just kind of put it out there and thought, oh, well, people will find it. Well, that was another huge surprise and big learning curve. Uh, Wow, I have to actually market this thing. So um, (laughs) I began to (laughs) learn about the marketing um, part of things. And and that's such a huge and frustrating uh, piece for me. Um, And I'm still learning. That is an ongoing experience for sure. How did you find navigating, you know, the, the print on demand services and, um, getting your art team and beta readers and, you know, the whole, that whole side of things. 
I was very lucky with beta readers and still am because as a former teacher, I know people that are teaching young adults. And I taught middle school and they turned out to be a great source for me when getting my book into hands of kids that can give me feedback. So my first book, I think I had about 20 beta readers for that book and was able to take their recommendations and their stamp of approval and feel super great about what I was doing with Rising Up. So that was a huge help. I also had teachers, still have teachers that continue to advocate for me in my book. I can go to the middle school and I can give presentations um, for this for this book um, in front of audiences. And of course, that's had to be you know curtailed a little bit with the with the coronavirus. Um, but you know, my goal is to go back and get into schools and be in person um, with these kids. So that has been a great boost for me in terms of finding the people that I need to market to and to give me the feedback that I need um, from the beta readers. How do you deal with reviews? How, how have your re- reviews been? And, and are you, do you use a service to, to get those ahead of time? Or do you just wait until the book comes out and then see how it goes? I did not know enough about that when I launched Rising Up to release it ahead of time. And therefore, I didn't do that. Uh, So any reviews that are up for Rising Up are reviews where people have read the book, bought the book. Um, Some are people that I know. Some are complete strangers, of course. Um, And it's just been slow. You know, it's not everybody that is willing to complete a review, um, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, you put it in the back of the book and you do all of those kinds of things. So um, the review process is one that you know, I'm constantly searching for better ways to get those reviews. Um, but they have been positive. I think I have one, one star review. Um, and the person, to be honest with you said, well, this is just like all the other dystopian books. (laughs) Okay. That was a good thing, but yeah, I'm like, okay, well that's the genre. So, you know, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to stay within the parameters of that. So you know, the one star review, you know, still hurt, but I could discount it and say, well, okay, um, if you're looking for something different, then you should read something different. So um, other than that, I've been really pleased with the reviews that I've received, um, particularly from the young people that uh, have been able to post those. I bet. And I bet it's really exciting to, as a, as a former educator, to go to signing events and, and see your, see your students or to, to, you know, have a, a student reach out to you and just say how much they've really enjoyed the book and, and how much of an impact it really made. Totally. It is so much fun. I just had a student, I, I think he's been out of my classroom for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he reached out to me and said, you know, I just realized that you published a book and I really want to read it. And I'm in a dystopian reading phase right now anyway. So would you meet me at Starbucks and we can catch up? And, you know, I'll, I'll purchase the book from you and I'm going to purchase another one uh, so that I can give it away to a, another student who might not have the opportunity to buy one. So that was really, really cool. 
And to be able to go into the classrooms or in an auditorium and present, honestly, I have never felt like such a celebrity in my life. (laughs) <laughs> when when doing that because it's it's quite a rush um you know the kids really look up to you as being a published author and the fact that they're buying a book that you have signed is like to them an amazing experience i would 100% imagine that the the smile on those kids faces when you're signing their book and and talking to them about the book that they just read is is so exciting absolutely it's like nothing else. Now, I'd love to know also, where's where's the future going for you, Tanya? Where What are you working on next? And and, and what other kind of projects are in the, in the mill? Uh, right now, I am, like I said, putting together my outline for book number three. And, you know, we had mm-hmm. some, some major shakeups in our family recently um, over the holidays. And so I wasn't even able to start book three when I, when I planned to. But book three is my next emphasis. And of course, getting book two published, um, I'm hoping that that thing is going to be out there by, you know, the first part of May. Um, that's my goal anyway. Um, and then book three, I will write, I think I'm going to close the series at that point, but mm-hmm. I am, you know, I'm kind of leaving the door open and that's why I called it a series and not a trilogy. Um, right. So um, to write book three and to hopefully get that out before an entire year has passed, um, that would be <laughs> my, that would be my goal. Um, I'm also, I've also written a short story and it's due to be published as well. And that's a new, that's a new direction for me because I have never felt that short stories were my calling. I really prefer to do the novels, Mm -hmm. but I think uh, short stories are a great way to get your name out there and to hone your skills as well um, as the novel. Yeah. And I know a lot of people have said that, that short stories and and the same thing for for play writing. I know the writing that ten minute play. You know, if you can master the short form, then you then you should be able to handle the long form. Right, exactly. Because to me, a chapter is basically a short story. Mm-hmm. And if I think about it in those terms, then it's like, yeah, I can write a short story. Um, I should be able to do that and to be able to do it well. Well, Tanya, your book sounds so exciting. I. Honestly, I'm very much looking forward to getting a copy and reading it, but I'd love for you to give us a little bit of advice for any authors or aspiring authors out there that might be listening. What's your what's your word of advice for them? I think perseverance would be the biggest piece of advice I can give um because this is a tough this is a tough world and if you don't dedicate yourself to a consistent writing routine, I think that's going to be a problem. I think the persistence that you need in following through and not giving up when things get hard is another piece. And then finally, getting your work out there. You know, my my biggest my biggest concern really when I was writing book number one uh, was the inner critic, um, that person, mm-hmm. that that thing always there. You know that you know that questioning. Um, I think that perseverance beyond that and and the ability to give yourself that self-talk that yes I can do this and somebody is going to love this material um, is a big part of what we do and 
I have read so many instances where people struggle with this very thing with, with being able to finish the work and not to stop in the middle. And so many people that set out to say they want to write a book, don't do it. And I, so I think persistence and just sticking to the task is one of the best things that you can do and to see it through to the end. I love that. So Tanya, can you tell the listeners where they can find you if they're interested in finding out more about you or your books? Yes, I am on Facebook. Um, It is um, Fiction Author 54, or you can just type in Tanya Ross and it will come up. I am on Instagram, um, TJ Ross underscore author. Um, And then I am also, I do have a website. It's going through a revision period right now, um, but it's www.tanyarossauthor.com. My book, Rising Up can be found at Amazon and at Barnes and Noble currently. It is in KU as well on Amazon. And it is in um, both ebook form and print right now. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Lane. It is great talking to you. And I wish you continued success with your podcast and with your with your delivery company series. I'm looking forward to reading that myself. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support myself and the show, head on over to patreon.com slash today. I hope that you continue to enjoy these amazing guests each week and that you go away feeling a little bit more Indino.